This week on Developer Weekly. And so AWS really began this entire space. And one of the interesting things is, you know, when we look at it, they have kind of evolved the entire concept of what it means to even be a cloud provider. Welcome to another episode of Developer Weekly. This week, I'm talking with David Tucker about getting started with Amazon Web Services, or AWS. David is a cloud development consultant and author at Pluralsight, O'Reilly, LinkedIn Learning, and much more. Thanks for being on the show, David. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing excellent. Thank you for having me on. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very interesting topic. Uh, I usually uh, get into uh, Azure topics as I... I love Azure and I have been playing with it since uh, its conception. And so I don't know much about AWS and I would love to learn from you because AWS is actually a lot older than uh, Azure, right? Yeah, that's correct. And so AWS really began began this entire space. And one of the interesting things is, you know, when we look at it, they have kind of evolved the entire concept of what it means to even be a cloud provider. And so AWS in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. has led the way in this area, but obviously we've seen providers like Azure come up and provide very similar services in a lot of areas, but yet it's still confusing when you're dealing with any platform that has so many different options and services included in it. Yeah, absolutely. That's also what I usually try to do in Azure, as in uh, tell people which uh, services they can use for which scenarios, because that is very confusing. There are hundreds of services for your scenario. Which one do you pick? And there's lots of overlap as well. So how did you even uh, get into the topic of AWS? Well, I could I could go back to almost the beginning of my career. I'll just give a super super quick uh, highlight. I remember when I was working uh, at a university here uh, in the states, and uh, I was helping to consult on research projects with the university. And I remember the first time uh, I could actually fire up virtual servers, like multiple virtual servers, um, on my own machine. And I just remember the excitement of being like, I-, I can make anything I want to make with this. And so when the cloud came out, I started to understand more about the public cloud it really was helping with a lot of the challenges that I was seeing with my development projects, just figuring out how to handle storage, for example, and how to spin up web servers, because I really, my initial development was in just being a web developer. And I wanted to figure out how I could go beyond what I could do just with a co-located server, which was how I was doing a lot of my work. And so with that, the cloud became of really a big interest for me because it enabled me to do so much more than I could do with what I had. Right. Yeah, the cloud is uh, is a, an amazing place. So let's just let's just start right there. As in uh, cloud in general, why is that even interesting over, let's say, a server that's under your desk? Yeah, I think for I think especially when we think about today's uh, climate in terms of development and technology in general, the exciting thing here is we've made it accessible to pretty much everyone. I remember when I first started as a developer, you had to have so much money to be able to set up something that could scale to even meet thousands of users. And the exciting thing here is now, if you're a developer and you have an idea, you can bring it to millions of people and really only pay for what you're actually using. Back when we think about traditional data centers with the ability to scale, you had to predict the amount of loads you were gonna have. You had to get more servers than what you needed. You had to have access to a data center. And it's just, we've almost democratized getting technology in the hands of people. And that to me is what's most exciting about it. 
Yeah, that that is very exciting to me as well. Because, uh, you know, basically now if you have an idea, you can just bring it to market. It doesn't really matter if you have no budget or anything. You can just put it all in the cloud on serverless uh, services and it just works. It's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it still excites me to this day as well because uh, cloud services evolve quickly as well. As in uh, back in the day, I used to work uh, with web applications a lot and uh, they also needed to be scalable even if they would run on uh, virtual machines, on-premises or wherever. So then we would build web farms and those web farms would then uh, be connected to each other and scale, which was a very, very difficult thing to do with uh, sharing session state and things like that. And nowadays, it's just a slider. You just slide <laughs> to scale up and down. And it's just crazy how much time I, I've in invested into learning that and actually getting things to run on that. And now it's just a slider. It kind of makes me sad, but also very excited. I, I totally agree. And I think only people uh, like us who have lived in both of these worlds really understand the brilliance of what we have currently. And one of the interesting things is, is that it means that in some ways we're doing less. And I think for some people, that reaction mm. is almost, it's a little, uh, it's almost a little troubling for them because they feel like, well, I know how to do all this complex things. Like for example, like you're talking about setting up some type of store for doing session state and keeping that across an entire cluster of servers. But what we learn is we get to now focus in not on all of these things required to do something, but we can really focus in on the application we're building and not any of these other things. Exactly. The cloud takes care of the plumbing for us, and we just focus on creating value for the customers. Exactly. That's what we want to do. So AWS, what, uh, what can it do for us? Let's say I'm a .NET developer, which I am, and I create, uh, let's say, an ASP.NET Core web application, which is just a web application that can run anywhere, really. Where would I run that in AWS? How would that work? Well, that's a great question. And one of the things that I've seen, because several of my clients are primarily .NET shops as well. However, for some of them, whether mm -hmm. it's for financial reasons or existing relationships they have, they've chosen to go the AWS route. And again, for most developers, that decision is going to be made you know, by their company at a, at a high level. So you could be a .NET developer and maybe, again, you really love Azure. You use it for all of your side projects. But all of a sudden, you find yourself trying to figure out, how do I work in this AWS space? And when we look at the problem, like you mentioned, trying to figure out where to run something like this, a .NET Core application that's a web application, one of the great things is just like on Azure, you have a lot of different choices depending on what you needed to do. So when we started off with AWS, you know, there really was a couple of ways to do this, but we've seen new services expand. And so, you know, if you're looking for the serverless type approach where you're really trying to minimize the amount of maintenance you're going to have to have, looking at a service like AWS Lambda, which really when Lambda launched, it really kicked off this serverless concept across most all of the cloud platforms. And they now have some equivalent. It gives you the ability to do something closer to what we would call functions as a service, FAAS, within the cloud. Cloud, but you still have the ability, if you need to, to either spin up a container with the container service that's available on AWS, which we call ECS, or just spin up your virtual servers if that's what you're more comfortable with uh, using EC2, which is a service that's been around really since about the beginning of AWS. Right. So you could use Lambda, which is the serverless service, to run an, uh, a complete website in it. 
Yeah, that's correct. And in most cases, we'll see this actually paired if you're doing a serverless approach. So if you're looking to do, let's say, maybe a single page application type approach. And so you're going to build in React or Angular or Vue, and you're going to host that in S3, which is the object storage service that we have within AWS. And then you're going to do all of your API calls through Lambda. So if you're looking to do more of that type of web application, then you'll just see all of that logic handled within Lambda, but the hosting in S3. But if you're doing more of a traditional web application, then you can look at using ECS. It's still possible to do it in Lambda, but it's a little bit more complicated in that approach. So that's when you generally see people moving over to more of a containerized approach. Right. And, and why would you use containers, really, in this case? Sure. So in this case, when we're thinking about you know, building out a traditional application where, you know, you're not adopting a front end, you know, web framework that's going to handle all the rendering for you and you're doing more page based. When you're looking at running something that's going to run over an extended period of time, one of the limitations that you have in working with a solution like Lambda is it, even though you get the benefits of it being more of a serverless type approach, you, you have specific limits for how it can run and for how much memory it can have. And so in some cases, mm. you could build an entire an entire traditional web application to run within those constructs. However, it, it probably would end up feeling a little bit limiting when you when you're running something on a container, you obviously you lose those limits, you have the ability to give it as much time as it needs to run because it's always going to be up and running. Or you could even set it to just run based on traffic. But you also lose that memory limit as well. You have the ability to configure it to have as much memory as you need it to have. So again, it would depend on what your limits are, but you gain the ability in using a specific service within ECS called Fargate. You lose uh, the, uh, the, the kind of the burden of having to manage your underlying cluster that your containers are running on. So you can do it in a much more efficient way than what we used to have to do when we were managing those clusters ourselves. Right, and and that is Fargate. Is that then a container orchestrator? Uh, yes, so it pairs with the AWS service called ECS. So there's really two different approaches you can take on AWS if you're interested in running a container. So you have ECS, which is Amazon's native service for running containers in the cloud. You also have EKS for people that are interested in doing the, the full Kubernetes workflow. But with ECS, you have the option to use this subservice called Fargate, and it totally manages the underlying layer for you. And this was one of the challenges that those mm. of us that that when we were starting off and we were trying to use ECS over Kubernetes, the challenge was the effective way to manage that underlying layer, because initially Kubernetes just did that better. But with Fargate, AWS has totally built up a, a native service for this and managing that underlying layer. So you don't even have to think about it as a developer. You can simply say, I want to have this container running. I want to have this many instances up and running, and I want it to be able to you know, meet this demand and the rest of it will be handled for you. Right. So if you would compare Fargate to uh, Kubernetes service, then Fargate is even uh, more platform as a service, as in you don't have to do as much than Kubernetes. Absolutely, and and so you you gain you have a little bit less control, but you have it being fully managed, as opposed to you know with Kubernetes, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, you'd have you'd have a lot more things you'd have to control than a lot more things that could go wrong. In some situations, that's exactly what you need. But for most cases, especially with the clients that I work with, they they actually need less control because the platform is going to manage it efficiently for them. Yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. Well, that's a great option, actually, because I like containers and I like the, the concept of containers and that you can just take it and run it locally. And it's the exact same thing that you run in the cloud. But I always um, 
I, I'm not sure, you know, because it's so infrastructure as a service, especially when you use Kubernetes, because then still you have to manage that whole infrastructure. And that's just not what I want to do. <laughs> I want to just focus on creating stuff. Exactly. And this brings up what I think is the number one mistake that new developers make when moving into the cloud. And that's because, especially mm. if they're more senior developers, they immediately shift to the more complex option instead of What's the option that's going to allow me to maximize the time I spend maintaining whatever I build? And I think you see that with even organizations. They'll, they'll say, well, of course, we need Kubernetes. We need all of those controls. And yet they don't ever factor in the maintenance time to the solutions that they build. I've worked with clients that really do need those controls. But again, I would say a vast majority of them do not. And so with the cloud, one of the things I encourage new developers with is, is choose the minimum approach that will allow you to get the objectives that you need. You can always add new things in later. You can always adjust your approach. But in the beginning, build something for the minimum amount of maintenance that you need long term that still meets the needs of the users that are going to be using it. Right. Because is it easy to uh, migrate from service to service? Yeah, one of the great things about a lot of the services is you do have that ability to migrate aspects of it. So if you're using a container, so especially if let's take a look at the container services, ECS, Fargate, and EKS, within that approach, you're still using a Docker container no matter which direction you choose. So if you mm, wanted to start off right. by using Fargate and then, you know what, we really need the controls that Kubernetes provides for us, absolutely. You can make that switch. There will be some work in switching, uh, but it's not going to be, um, it, it's a little easier to um, to go from a simpler solution to a more complex one than it is to work backwards and go from the more complex one to the simple one. All right, so that that's great. That, that's a couple of options, and those are actually a lot less options to run your application in than uh, Azure has, which is a great thing, I think, because there's so much overlap always, and it's difficult to choose uh, things from. So what about storing data? What would you use for that? Yeah, and this this there are a couple of options here with this as well. And I think this is one of the things that's important to remember to those of us that have been in the cloud for a while is that chances are when we started in the cloud, uh, there were a lot less options. And now that there's so many options, it's a little bit more overwhelming for new developers that are getting into the platform. But for most mm. things in terms of storage on AWS, you're going to be looking at S3, which is just one of the most important services on the entire platform. Now, if you're talking about things like where you're actually attaching volumes to virtual servers, there's, there's other services that you're going to be leveraging. But when you're simply talking about storage, whether that's storing things like user-generated content um, from your web application or your mobile application, or whether you're talking about storing uh, log data or whether, whether you're talking about you know, st really storing any type of just general data, in those cases, S3 is going to be the solution for you. And one of the things that I think developers can sometimes be fooled by is it's, it's very simple to get into S3 and to go in and upload files into S3. And, and you might think, well, that's, that's all this is, right? This just stores files. But you can begin to know some of the capabilities that are provided with S3 that really do differentiate it being, you know, one is there's lifecycle configuration. So you've got the ability to move your data between, you know, warm storage to cold storage to a true complete cold, cold archive storage. You've got the ability to 
um, use it for a data lake. So you've got the ability to even go in and run queries against unstructured data that's stored within your S3 buckets. There's, I mean, really, there's so much that S3 does, and it all ties in very nicely with AWS's uh, authorization tool, which is IAM. So you can control who has access to it and even set up some very specific policies for things like controlling who can access it from, from a user perspective, from an IP perspective. There's, there's a lot of different options. So S3 is really the powerhouse storage service that we have on AWS. And then you use that to store unstructured data, so non-relational data, right? Correct. So we can see, I know a lot of organizations that will dump, for example, let's say large amounts of log data into S3 directly. Uh, and as mm. mentioned, you can use a service called Athena to go in and actually run queries against that data. Again, you can also use it just as easily to store you know, photos that people upload as a part of your web application. And, and again, use that to potentially use the lifecycle rules to move that back and forth between warm storage and cold storage, for example. And one of the great things about S3 as well is built into that by default, um, depending on how you configure it, but you have the ability to also have URLs to every object that you store within S3. So if you want to use it as storage for your web assets, you have the ability to do that. If you want to be able to just make something available to the public and throw it out there so you can have a download link, you can do that. And then you also can pair this in with another service, which is called Amazon CloudFront, which is Amazon's global content delivery network. So you can utilize, uh -huh. you can pair S3 with CloudFront, and now you've distributed your content out to all of their edge locations. And you see a lot of people using this with their web applications for storing their static assets and, and doing it this way. You're really optimizing the download speed for anyone that's using your web application. We can see great increases over just using S3 by pairing it with CloudFront. Right. So uh, just for the listeners, if you didn't catch that, then CloudFront is a content delivery network, which makes sure that stuff that you put in there, like uh, static files, like JavaScript files or images, get to be populated to edges that are very close to the users, little data centers that are always close to the users so that the data is always close to you, and therefore you have less latency and things are more performant. Absolutely. And so that's cool. And AWS has many, many edge locations. I forget the exact number now, but I'm pretty sure we're north of 200 mm -hmm. edge locations around the world. So you you can really see your content spread out. And this is another one of the things that just gets me excited when we think about kind of how things used to be versus how they are now. The fact that virtually anyone can take and distribute their content and send it out to servers, you know, from, from Europe to Asia to North America, South America, you can just send it out through uh, just really with one click of the mouse within five to 10 minutes, you're going to have that content all around the world. That's something that still really excites me. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just a massive scale, isn't it? It's the extreme massive scale that is so easy to use with the cloud. It's just uh, still amazing to me. Absolutely. So what about relational data, like a SQL database, for instance? Can I put that somewhere in uh, AWS? Absolutely. And so there's several different approaches that you can take, but the core service for relational databases on AWS is called RDS, a relational database service. And the great thing here is we're not just talking about, you know, using an AWS specific database. You have access here to SQL Server, you have access to MySQL, you have you know, access to Postgres, MariaDB. There's several choices. But in addition to that, you also do have access to something that's AWS specific, and that's called Aurora. And that's a database engine that really was built for the cloud. So they built that themselves, but they really targeted it at being both MySQL and Postgres compatible. So you actually can pick 
when you create an Aurora database, hey, do I want it to be MySQL compatible or Postgres compatible? And you can use all of the same libraries. So one of the great benefits is if, you, if you're used to using either of those databases, then you simply can create a database in RDS that's Aurora, and you don't have to change any of your code to get it to work with Aurora. It just works out of the box. And one of the really exciting things that they also have developed with this is there's a concept called Aurora serverless. So if you have a database, maybe you have a side project and you're just, you want to have access to a database, but you don't want to pay for one to be up all the time with serverless, you gain the ability to basically have this database spin up and spin down as needed and even scale as needed without you having to worry about managing those underlying database instances. So we're certainly seeing a lot more in this area. There's still a few negative aspects of using the serverless approach. There's still kind of maturing that product over time, but it's really exciting to see those kind of concepts factor in now to databases as well as, you know, compute resources that we have with Lambda. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's very exciting. What a cool name, by the way, Aurora. <laughs> Lots of cool names in AWS. I will give you one comment on the names. One thing you do have to be careful with when you're learning about AWS as a developer is a lot of the services have similar names. And so one of the things that I always hear back from learners when they're getting ready for certification tests is, oh, there's so many services to memorize. And we have things like cloud search versus cloud formation versus, you know, cloud trail. All yeah. of these sound the same. How do I, you know, so so that's just one of the things to let developers know. If, you, if you're struggling with that, you're not the only one. There's, you know, 212 services right now on AWS. And sometimes it can be hard to remember all of the different names and, and what they mean. Yeah, absolutely. And they might change as well. <laughs> like yes. in Microsoft Azure, they sometimes change because the marketing team just decides that another uh, name just sounds better or <laughs> is better for the market. Yes, <laughs> just definitely. Crazy. Definitely. So what about uh, big data and data analytics? Because you talked about that a little bit already that you can use, it was S3, I think, also to run, to, to store your big non-relational data and then do a bit of data analytics over that. Are there other services as well? Yeah, there are. And there's there's actually a growing number of services in this area. Th this is an area that I think mm -hmm. AWS has really placed a lot of emphasis on in the last few years. We've even seen them develop uh, what we call specialty certifications for both big data, which is now called analytics, and also within machine learning. And, and these areas really do intersect. So if you're looking for more of a traditional data warehousing approach, this is where we have a service called Redshift. And so this is what's going to give you, you know, again, column-based storage for structured data where you can mm. store it at a petabyte scale. So large, large amounts of data. Um, so that's where we see a lot of organizations shift that are looking for more of that data warehouse approach. Now, if you're looking for more of that data lake approach, this is where we see organizations looking to use S3 for that type of data storage. And AWS has even tried to make this easier with the service called LakeFormation, which any of their services mm -hmm. that, that end in formation are really there to help you build out an initial capability in this area, to, to launch infrastructure. So LakeFormation tries to go in and set up data lake constructs, go in and actually set up some aspects of governance. And they even have services you can integrate with it that will help to go through and identify using machine learning, identify sensitive 
of data and make sure that that's being handled properly as well. So this is an exciting area. There's so many services. You know, if you're an organization that's used to using traditional, if you're if you're used to using Apache Spark, for example, you know, we have uh, the service EMR, which is Elastic MapReduce, which will allow you to have access to all of those same tools within AWS, but in a way where they're managing that for you. It's really more of a platform as a service approach uh, when you're doing that. But there also are, you know, cloud native tools that you can interact with as well. And then we have the entire suite with SageMaker, for example, that will enable us to go in and take all the data that we have stored in and begin to create machine learning solutions on top of what's there. Ah, very cool. And, and what about uh, visualizing that data? So we have some different tools and here's here's where I'm going to be really honest with you because I know that you know some people <laughs> that work in a platform like AWS just always believe AWS is the best solution. Uh, but here, you know, if you, we have people that are used to working within Power BI and in Tableau for example, you know, AWS has a service yeah. called QuickSight and and it's a really good service. It, it's, it doesn't have the capabilities that you would see in a Power BI or a Tableau solution. But for some organizations, the solutions there are, are adequate for what they need. I've moved several of my clients onto QuickSight because they have some very pretty basic needs in terms of data visualization. And with QuickSight, you can go in just as you can with those other services and create customized dashboards that are tied into your data. And you can do that. You know, you can marry together your structured and unstructured data into a single into a single view. And you know, for a lot of organizations, that type of data insight is just something that you know something that they use on a daily basis. But I will say again, if you're looking for some really advanced visualization use cases, solutions like Power BI and Tableau, or, or they're going to be a little bit a, a step ahead of what we have within QuickSight. Oh, okay. Well, you should choose a tool that's uh, best for you, and not per se the tool that's in in your preferred uh, platform. Right. Exactly. All right, so we're building quite an application already. We can run our, our website, we can store our data, we can uh, use containers if we want to, we can do data analytics if we want to. What about if I want to do something with IoT, like I have a little device or I have many devices and that sends many, many millions of messages to the cloud. Is there something for that? Absolutely. And what we see here within a, a service called AWS IoT is that one of the great benefits of it is that it does integrate seamlessly into a lot of the other services that we've already mentioned. And this to me is, while I totally agree with what you mentioned previously, we need to use the service that's best for whatever solution we need. One of the things I will say too is when we do pick services that are in the platform that we're in, we do usually get some advantages with that. And I think here, one of the advantages in using AWS IoT is we can see this integrate in in a great way with services like Lambda, for example, and with uh, with some of the messaging services that we have within AWS. So it becomes very easy for us to go in and configure, even if we have millions of messages coming in from our IoT devices, we can see them you know, come in, we can analyze them, we can get analytics on them using some tools with uh, what we call Amazon Kinesis, which is the stream processing solution we have on AWS. We can then, based on certain conditions, fire off a, a compute instance with Lambda to actually perform some action on the data that's coming in. And we can store that data, mm -hmm. even if it's unstructured in S3 and get that data lake capability that we talked about previously. So I really think the IoT example is really a strong use case for pairing some of these services together uh, because of all the tight integration that can happen when you're working within a platform like AWS. Yeah, and, and then from there, you have lots of data that you can then... Uh, do machine learning on and uh, uh, use artificial intelligence to discover what's in the data or to use it for, for different purposes. I'll bet you guys probably have uh, a lot of 
artificial intelligence services as well. Like Azure has the cognitive services, that is artificial intelligence as a service, which is really a software as a service offering. What is, uh, what is there in AWS for that? Absolutely. So the equivalent services to the cognitive services in Azure is that on AWS, we have what they call their AI services. And they're very similar in nature. And, and this is one of the things I love really about both Azure and AWS. You know, for some organizations, especially if we look, you know, three, four years in the past, it was really difficult for them to get up to speed with using any aspect of machine learning or AI because it required them to have mm. a very specific skill set. They had to have people that were really at the time kind of on, on the cutting edge. They had to have a lot of expensive hardware to do some GPU based processing. And, and what we see here is, is we've really lowered the barrier for what it takes for organizations to get in and use these kind of services. So on AWS, we have a whole suite of them and it can be you know ones like, for example, AWS recognition. This is their computer vision service. And so with this, you can go in and get keywords back from an image, for example. If we want to just understand what is detected within that image, we can get those back. We also can go in and, and store faces within recognition and then detect those faces in other images. We can even go through and try to determine the emotion of someone uh, within a particular image. And, and that's just that's just really the tip of the iceberg of, of what's possible. We also have the ability to go in and, and get take text and uh, convert audio of text into uh, into actual text that we can work with. We can take text that we submit and have it be converted into a voice actually speaking that. So we have so many different things that cover you know vis uh, use cases from computer vision to natural language processing to regression. We have a service called AWS Forecast that is able to actually just based on the data that you input, create a regression model and be able to predict mm. future values. So we really see a wide range of services that people can simply use you know, in a SaaS-based approach to fully take advantage of machine learning, but without having to build their own models and go through all the complexities that come with that. Yeah, I think that's a very good uh, approach to get people into AI as well, because it's very complex to do so. And uh, when you use these, you can just get started. And if you want to customize, you can always do that later. Absolutely. So I would like to use uh, Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code to create my applications. Are there any uh, extensions for AWS in Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code so that I can easily deploy stuff or maybe talk to uh, APIs within AWS? Sure, that's that's a great question. And and first, let me just I'll throw out the irony here that you know for a long time I was a developer not in the Microsoft world, and I, you know I was on a Mac and I was mm. you know I was doing iOS development for a long period of time. And it's funny if you would have ever told me that so much of of what I'm doing would would shift over to the Microsoft stack, I probably wouldn't have believed you. But even me on a daily basis, I'm using mm. Visual Studio Code as my primary editor uh, in working with AWS and in, and in working with Azure with some of my clients. And so one of the great things we have here is there are multiple extensions that are available for AWS in terms of working with within Visual Studio Code. This actually is the primary editor I see them creating extensions for. So you have, depending ah. on what you're doing within um, within AWS, there's going to be several different extensions that you can take advantage of, including just you know some basic extensions that that cover you know wide use cases, and then some very specific extensions for working with specific things, like for example the the CDK, which is AW, one of AWS's tools for um, doing infrastructure as code. So there are there are several different options that are available to you, and if you're using Visual Studio Code, especially, I think you'll you'll probably feel right at home working uh, within AWS. 
Uh, I expect it uh, as much. <laughs> there probably are lots of extensions, just like there are for Azure, of course. Yes. Um, as in Visual Studio Code, as in Visual Studio as well. So, so Amazon just now, it's, it seems like a, a very complete platform, of course, because it's very mature and it has all these offerings for basically everything that you can think of. How do you uh, best get started with it? As in, are there guides or websites that you can go to? What's the best way to get started? Yeah, absolutely. I think for for most developers, there are some great resources that AWS does provide to kind of help you take those first steps. One of the things that I probably would selfishly say this is I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about how to get developers started on AWS. And a lot of this went into a path that I have on Pluralsight. And I worked very closely with Pluralsight. We spent about a month kind of rethinking, you know, how do we put out a path that really helps people get started in this area? And what we ended up with is a path that covers something called the cloud practitioner certification. So AWS has this an entry level certification, and this is pretty unique here. This is designed not just for developers, but really anybody who's going to be working in or around the cloud. And this is the initial certification mm. that just shows that somebody has a good understanding of the platform and of the different capabilities. It doesn't cover everything. It, it's, it's a very wide, but kind of very shallow certification. It's designed to help just demonstrate that you have this wide knowledge. And one of the things I've seen is, you know, we've seen so many people take this on, especially in this current time when people aren't sure about their job status, they're trying to get new skills, they're trying to make themselves marketable within, you know, within this pandemic uh, to, to potentially new opportunities. And this certification has proved to be a great way for new developers to get into AWS. So that would be one of the things I would reference there. There's three different courses. There's even a project where you can begin to put some of those concepts in place. And while AWS has some free resources that also are very, very good, I think this would really help you get from, you know, kind of your starting point of not knowing much about the platform at all to truly understanding the benefits of the cloud, what AWS provides. And also one of the great things about it is if you go down this path and you stick with it, you actually will end up with a certification that you can actually go out and have that on your resume be something that helps open up doors for you within your career. All right. Well, that is absolutely great. I will uh, put a link to this uh, Pluralsight path in the show notes and also to other links of yours, including davidtucker.net. Well, thank you very much for being on the show and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Developer Weekly. Please help me to spread the word by reviewing the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Also, visit www.developerweeklypodcast.com for show notes and the full transcript. And if you like to support me in making the show, please visit my Pluralsight courses and learn something new. 